0: Let's take a moment to thank our sponsor, Avast, for supporting the Bureau. A vast new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Hey, join me in a shout-out to Credit Karma for supporting my podcast. Credit Karma. Apply with more confidence today. Ready to apply? Head to creditkarma.com slash loanoffers to see personalized offers. Now, back to the podcast. I'm Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence. Join me on a journey to explore our nation's security, the forces that threaten it, and the people who preserve it. Let's talk with insiders in and around the intelligence community law enforcement, and the military, including, of course, the FBI. They'll take us deep into their stories, their mission, and their lives as we go behind and beyond the Bureau.
1: In small town America, there are just as many of these mass shootings. This happens
0: every single week, and we don't see it anymore, we're almost numb to and it. we have more guns than people in the United States. When's the FBI gonna solve this? When are the cops gonna do this? When's the president gonna do something? The gun
1: problem is, is is more complicated than mass shootings. Wow, wow. What the heck? Something's imminent. 30 to 40% of these shooters commit suicide.
0: We have a gun violence crisis, but we also have a mental health crisis.
1: The people who are gonna stop the mass shooting crisis are you and me.
0: The Brooklyn subway shooting is just another in a mind-numbing long list of mass shootings in America. While politicians pontificate themselves into a paralysis of inaction on gun violence, the rest of us can and must learn what we can do in our lives, our businesses, our churches, and our schools to stop the killing. Katherine Schweit is a security consultant, a professor, and a retired FBI agent executive who created the FBI's active shooter program after the terrible tragedy at Sandy Hook Elementary School. She's the author of Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis. Katherine Schweit is our guest on this episode of The Bureau. Kate, I am thrilled that you're able to carve out time to talk to us. I can't think of a a better guest to have following the New York subway shooting than someone who has spent so much time, as you, thinking, writing, and doing around the topic of mass shooters. So, thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, Frank. I, I'm, I'm pleased to be able to share at least uh, what I've learned from my uh, time in in this world to uh, share with your great audience. The subway shooting has been right at the right at the edge. You know, I was actually on air when they announced they caught the guy. So it was like, ah.
0: Yeah. Well, in terms of the news business, it doesn't get better than that to being on when the capture occurs. Of course, now we've learned that he literally uh, called in and identified his location, which is always nice uh, when they do that.
1: Leakage. That's a conversation for later.
0: Leakage. We will talk about leakage (laughs) and what, what that means in terms of the behavioral science of this. All right. We've had another, yet another mass shooting. Let me ask you something. What's the data look like on mass shootings? Is it just our perception, or are we truly experiencing an increase in the number of mass shootings?
1: We are truly experiencing an increase in mass shootings. And I say that as a person who has been looking at numbers and studying for a decade. And I kept thinking when I started, I would see the numbers go down. And even though violent crime, as I'm sure your audience knows, is on the decline, mass shootings and active shooters, what we consider to be the worst types of shootings, the most visible ones, are definitely, definitely on a very scary trajectory.
0: Well, scary is is right. And we're going to actually talk about that Let's start, as they say at the beginning. How should we be defining mass shooting? Before we get into a discussion of it, we should probably define our terms. What's a mass shooting?
1: That's good. I think I'm glad you asked me that simple question because it's a complicated. Answer. So mass shooting under federal law since 2013 has been a killing of three or more people. As often happens, three or more people does, doesn't define whether or not it includes the shooter. So mass shooting itself is three or more people killed and that can be in private, in public or whatever. That's legally what the federal definition is. But when researchers go out and do different research on whatever they're gonna try to do, whether it's gun issues or whether it's mental health issues or whether it's issues about police resources that are needed for mass shootings, they oftentimes, researchers often use three or four as a threshold oftentimes you'll hear people say, oh, the FBI has a threshold of four or more. That's not true. It's a common myth that you see in, in writings all the time that the FBI limits their numbers to four. And in fact, the FBI research, the bulk of the FBI research, including this, uh, the study that I started, that I, that I wrote back and that was first released in 2015, which is the baseline study for the FBI that they've continued every year, uses n- zero As the beginning number, it's not about how many people are shot or killed or injured. It's about what is occurring in the incident that makes it an active shooter incident and a potential mass shooting or mass casualty event.
0: You know, that makes complicated. I'm sorry. No, when you first said that, you know, zero, I I, I sounded odd. Now I'm now I'm I'm envisioning a scenario where someone might have intended to shoot a hundred people, but for whatever reason. He's a bad shot. The police jumped on him, what have you. Right. He's still worthy of our study.
1: Right. Think about the fact that uh, that the subway shooter, he, uh, they said, what, 33 uh, shell casings they picked up. 33 rounds. He's right on top of people, and he kills no one, at yeah. least, uh, and God bless, hopefully uh, still remains that way right now. Yeah. Injured a lot of people, terrorized a lot of people, but he could have done tremendous damage. He had other magazines with him. So the idea that somebody... You know, you and I carried a gun for a living for a long time. The idea that somebody's a bad shot doesn't exclude the fact that they tried to kill a lot of people or tried to terrorize a lot of people. And that's why the FBI always looks at, doesn't look at the number of people, uh, the number of casualties. Interesting. They look at the incident.
0: Interesting. So you mentioned the word scary uh, just a minute ago. And the anxiety level, particularly for those who are traveling on, on mass transit in New York, subways, of course, every day, um, the anxiety levels incredibly high. But this isn't just about the New York subway system. I, I, there are no. lots of lots of people on social media, media pointing out a valid point, which is, boy, this got a lot of media coverage. But this happens every single week in America, and we don't see it anymore. We're almost numb to it. I I can't help but think when you're talking anxiety and scary. Of other kinds of mass shootings that you really do specialize in, like like school shootings and kids and the anxiety of, that kids mm-hmm. have, and so many of our listeners have grandkids, children, right? Um, what's what do we tell our kids and our grandkids about mass shooting when it's you can't be escaped on uh, on television?
1: You're right. I I have to tell you, you know, you know, Frank, I've worked in this whole area for a long time. And even though half of these types of shootings occur in places of business and only, and I don't mean only, but a quarter of them occur in school environments, the bulk of the concern that I hear is from moms and dads and grandparents and teachers and principals, um, people who are afraid to let, take their kids to school. And you think about it, you know, you've got your seven-year-old, your precious seven-year-old, and you're finally confident enough to let that child go to school. And then you have a situation where now you're like, should I let the child go to school? Because who's gonna protect that child, right? So most of the people who raise their concerns, it's about, uh, you know, their younger kids. And I guess that's, that's the instinct all of us have to protect the most vulnerable. And when you talk about mass transit, you know, kids ride mass transit too, buses, and uh, not to go too far afield, but you know, just what you were talking about, the media coverage on the subway is in part because it's a subway and it's New York City. There's a lot of media there to cover it. And that's just kind of the nature of how the news coverage is itself. But in small town America, in medium town America, there are just as many of these mass shootings and they're just not covered quite as much, which I think is okay for a different reason. I'd tell you if you asked me down the road, but um, they're not covered as much. And so people maybe have a false sense of security over anxiety over riding a subway, but a false sense of security about riding the bus in their local town.
0: So on the topic of kids and school shootings, what what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong in terms of protecting children in the school environment from mass
1: shooters? I think what we're doing right is... Caring enough to look for answers, and I think we've made a lot of progress. Uh, If you think back, nineteen ninety nine Columbine High School shooting, Virginia Tech shooting, Um, the school shootings, it's easy to throw a lot. Try to throw a lot of money at hardening of the target. You know, bulletproof this and glass and cameras and security guards and police officers assigned
0: and 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 teachers with guns.
1: And teachers with guns, which in, you know, Florida after Parkland, Florida passed a law that said there must be an armed person in every school. And so I think what we're doing right is we're looking for solutions. We're looking aggressively for solutions, and it's not just one. When the Oxford High School shooting occurred in November of this past year, and then four people were killed, the parents were charged with involuntary manslaughter because they allowed a 16 year old, 15 year old to get a gun and the child is charged with four counts of murder and terrorism. The idea of charging and terrorism is an aggressive way that we are looking to hold people accountable. I think for schools, I think we're doing that in a good way. We're getting more confident about training kids and believing that kids are not stupid and they are going to understand that there's a threat going on in their school or they're going to be afraid. So many people say, I don't want to make kids afraid. Kids are living it with it every day, they're hearing it on the news. So I think we're doing a good job of that. I think we could do a way better job of training. We could do a way better job of uh, providing a better communications and support for threat assessment teams and law enforcement connectivity with the schools. I don't think we do enough of that. And I think that we, as a society, <laughs> Frank, you've probably heard me say this before, but maybe not. We as a society want everybody else to solve the problem. That's where we are right now. Yeah. And, and the problem in mass shootings is, you know, I wrote this book, Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis. In the set first chapter, it says the people who are going to stop the mass shooting crisis are you and me. That's who has to do yeah, it.
0: I, I, I get this on that topic. I get this all the time. People coming up to me on, on a myriad of topics. When's the FBI going to solve this? When are the cops going to do this? When's the president going to do something? And I, and and I give them the the symbol, similar response that you just gave, which is, you know, it's, this is going to be a team sport. It's going to take all of us. But how do you train when it comes to young kids? How do you train without traumatizing? Is somebody out there doing this better than other places? Yes,
1: yes, 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 absolutely. Yes. So again, not like in the category of a blatant plug, but you know, I do a podcast also called Stop the Killing and my co-podcaster is Sarah Ferris. The reason that we do that podcast is Sarah is kind of like my target market for the book. She lives in London and she said, why don't you just get rid of all the guns in the United States? You won't have this problem. And of course, that conversation has been so dissected apart about Sarah, my dear, that's just not the solution. We have more guns than people in the United States, plus our laws are different. But when we talk about how to talk to kids, there are so many great ways. Sesame Street, for instance, has a whole section online about how to talk to kids about dangerous situations. I list a bunch of books that are available in in my book but but we also mention it on the podcast it's on my website. There are ways to train kids and I'll tell you if you want to look to who is doing it so well, uh, one thing that people should know and one people they don't one thing they don't know. One thing that they should know is, They've been doing this uh, since Columbine in Denver, in Colorado, and they train kids all the way down into the elementary schools. And I've been in those classes and in those training sessions. They're not scary. Count on the fact that teachers know how to talk to kids at the level of their, of their age. I mean, they're not running in and, you know, you don't t- teach a kid not to put their hand on the burner at the house by putting their hand on the burner. You t- you tell them, don't put your hand on the burner. You don't scream at them. You tell them you don't put them in front of a broken truck and and, and, and a car crash and and kids run over in the street to teach them not to run into the street. You tell them, don't run into the street. And that's what they do in Denver and the school systems there and Jeffco school systems, Jefferson County. So that's really good. But I think that most people probably don't know what their schools do. And I would challenge all of your listeners, find out what your school does uh, because they're probably giving training. The, the kids at Sandy Hook, there were 20 little tiny kids, first graders murdered at Sandy Hook, along with seven six women. And then uh, before the shooter, you know, killed himself, and then uh, before that he had killed his mother, those 20 children at Sandy Hook had been given active shooter training in their schools just weeks before. And most people don't know that. And six or seven of those children who survived that shooting did just what they were told to do. And when the teacher stepped in way of the shooter, those children ran out of doorway and escaped and survived.
0: Wow, I think an untold story, at least as far as I'm concerned, um, from Sandy Hook. Let me take one minute to tell you about the latest advances in cybersecurity. Avast is a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years, entrusted by over 435 million users. Avast empowers you with digital safety and privacy, no matter who you are, where you are, or how you connect. Enjoy the opportunities that come with being connected on your terms. Avast new all-in-one solution. Avast one helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. I'm all about security, and today security is online security. It's your online security. And here's why I choose Avast for my online security. Its antivirus is award-winning. It stops viruses and malware from harming your devices. It has PC Speedup, which optimizes the background activity of your apps in order to speed up your PC. Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month. With Avast One, you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, or other cybercrimes. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Now, back to our guest. So, I've got to ask this question. Uh, short of the sadly unreasonable uh, solution of taking guns away from everybody, which which seemingly will never happen here, let's talk about why. Let's talk about why we're seeing an increase, what you're seeing in research about commonalities, Across mass shooters, who are they? Why are they doing it? And then, of course, what can we do about it?
1: Yeah, um, great questions, very loaded questions, Frank. Thanks a lot for that. Sure. Yeah. Well,
0: I think one of the, one of the reasons I I was convinced you're the right guest at the right time is because you take a very pragmatic and reasonable approach to this. You you can talk about guns. But you can also say, listen, while everybody's uh, arm wrestling about guns, why don't we do something? And so, <laughs> why, right. you know, that's why I, I'm glad you're here. Let's understand a mass shooter. Let's yeah. understand what we can do about it.
1: Yeah, I think, and I, that's nice of you to say, I appreciate you pr- appreciate you seeing that. my My mission is not, sometimes people say, oh, you're just talking about politics or guns. And I think the, the fact is that I'm, I'm talking about everything but politics and guns, because politics and guns are great. And there's lots of people arguing about those things, but those things aren't going to get us there. There's other things that are going to get us there. Although I'll, I'll add this caveat about guns. Think about this when, it caught, when we talk about guns and mass shootings and violence. There were 47,000 deaths firearms deaths in the United States last year, 47,000. Two-thirds of those were by suicide. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. So our, so part of our firearms problem, such as it is, if you want to call it the word problem is unsecured weapons and people who have access to weapons who have mental wellness issues, you know, that may be, uh, may be situational, like they're stressed and they have these triggers because they lose a job or things like that, that, that may ebb and flow. Some have mental, uh, health issues that are, challenging or undiagnosed or they're diagnosed, but they, they waver. And of those 47,000 deaths and, and two thirds of them being suicides, uh, the highest number of suicides are men, white men in, the, in rural communities that are in their 40s and 50s. So I think part of understanding what our problems are with deaths and firearms, you know, you have to know some of the statistics behind it. But all that said, you know, if a third of the guns in the United States are unsecured, the gun problem is 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 more complicated than mass shootings, but how do we go to the people who have these guns and uh, commit a mass shooting? Most mass shooters uh, carry legally purchased guns, either purchased by themselves or purchased by somebody they know, and then they borrow them or steal them.
0: As did the Brooklyn subway shooter. He. Legally purchased that gun, traceable to a, a seller in Ohio.
1: Eleven years prior, he had that gun for eleven years. So you know, then the question becomes: What makes somebody choose to do this? And in the case of the 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 subway shooter, I think we'll find that he had a, a long history of rants on YouTube videos, and clearly was very frustrated and reaching out and reaching out. So before we kind of, if we we're going to talk about or if we get a chance to talk about leakage, to answer your question about kind of what are our key points? How can we help? I think we do know that this is a trend that's driving up. I think that some of it is is, uh, certainly a copycat effect and gun availability. And those are things that are complicated, right? Um, And they're not going away necessarily. But we also have a lot of people on media and social media who are continuing to play up who the shooters are. But when your face is in your phone, you're not looking at the guy standing in front of you. And that is a pretty much what we're dealing with. I think now, if I had to pick one thing based on all the work that I've been doing about in this area, about the shooters and how we're not seeing them, we're choosing by truth default theory, kind of uh, to choosing kind of the Malcolm Gladwell concept of truth default theory, that we're not going to look and believe that somebody could do something bad around us. And we're not looking for people around us. We're not looking for people who are under duress. Yeah,
0: this is this is really critical here. So you're saying that mass shooters are, quote unquote, talking to us, sometimes for a protracted period of time, and we're simply not seeing it. So help us, right. help us to, to, to tell us what we should be looking for. What are, what right. are the warning signs and indicators? How, how are they leaking? How are they talking to us?
1: So sometimes some research shows us in 80% of the, uh, the situations the leakage, as we call it, the leakage is is not only just uh, somebody who's move being seeped. I wouldn't I wouldn't have seen that. You do see it. You not only hear it. Leakage in eighty percent. The FBI has one uh, one research that shows that eighty percent of the time the leakage is actually audio. It's verbal. Like they say something specific to somebody that they're going to do something. It's communicated directly to people. And who uh, students, especially 92% and when the FBI did its largest research effort on on these actual shooters, 92% of the students, students around the shooter specifically were noticed the concerning behavior and then didn't report it to anybody. And 95% of the time for all of the shooters that the FBI looked at, 95% of the time, the communication to others was verbal. Wow! People are leaking, leaking yeah. their intent, yeah. very specific intent. But you might say, well, he just says, so so here's what I mean about, uh, here's the two aspects to that. One is you say, well, he said that one thing, he says things like that all the time. Well, okay, first, before we look at why people excuse the conduct and excuse the words, here's the conduct you should be looking for and the words, people who express violent ideations, they're talking specifically about wanting to get even or they've got grievances, whether they're real or perceived and they talk about that and they build it and build it and build it, what I call grievance collectors, right? They put the rocks in their backpack and the backpack gets heavier and heavier. People who stop taking their medication, change their personal appearance, give away their personal possessions and seem despondent and not interested in the future. Those are people who might want to commit suicide, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, giving away your personal possessions sounds like they're awfully close to their flashpoint, that something's imminent.
1: 30 to 40% of these shooters commit suicide. Yeah. So it's the same behaviors that we are willing to call mental health providers and law enforcement to save somebody from committing suicide, but we're not willing to call law enforcement or mental health people when we think they might commit a mass shooting.
0: And okay, that and, not willing part. So a lot of people are listening right now, going, "God darn it! I, I, you're describing someone I know or work right. with, right?" And and they're right. how do you, how do you get people over that that hurdle? of saying, I don't want to rat somebody out. I don't want to be wrong. I will, not only will I be embarrassed, but right. I could really get this person in trouble and I'll never live it down. How do you get them over that hump?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a kind of a knowledge base, right? That's a training thing. And that's a, like, listen to my words when I tell you. Law enforcement has plenty of stuff to do besides randomly pick on somebody who said, a 12 year old who said, I want to kill that teacher. She makes me so mad. So here, here's the short answer. You have to trust yourself. You know when your kid is, is doing something wrong upstairs because it's too quiet. You've got that like spidey sense, right? You've got that parent intuition. You know when somebody's staring at you from across the room in, in a store or in a restaurant, you, something happens. That sense that you have of caution, that you have to trust. And people dismiss it. They say, he, seemed, he says things like that all the time. I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get him in trouble. He didn't really mean it. He's never done that before. We hear those things all the time in law enforcement. You heard him, Frank. I heard them. We hear it after the fact, after somebody's committed a horrific act or committed a crime, and you knock on the neighborhood doors and they say, yeah, I heard him. If I had a dime, I'm going to tell you, yeah. she says it, the caveat. If I had a dime for every time that I read a report that said the neighbor said this guy had increased his shooting in his backyard and he was shooting in the backyard every day. It sounded like hundreds of rounds. I would be able to buy a, a very hefty cup of coffee just over what's occurred in the last couple of years.
0: Right. So re- research is you're saying research shows not only do they leak and articulate even verbally, but they, as they mm-hmm. get closer and closer to action, you're, you're seeing practicing acquisition of weapons. Right. There's, there's clear signs they're getting closer to, to acting out.
1: Correct. A shooter moves on a, a very predictable trajectory towards violence. They get this idea that they might want to commit violence because they've got a real or perceived grievance. And that might be because they're angry about a promotion they didn't get or a promotion somebody else got, a breakup in a relationship. Those are the most common job and family relationship issues. But financial issues and mental health issues are also right up there at the top four. They have this idea that is that's bothering them. They decide that they might commit violent act and then they plan and prepare for it. And that means that they make the plan and they buy the equipment and the things they need. Mm -hmm. They run surveillance detection routes on where they're gonna go. They go to the store and buy more equipment. They get bulletproof vests. They buy a hat. You see people like the subway shooter, he rented a van, he lived on the street, he slept on the street the night before. You know, we'll probably, as we track back, we always see that oftentimes the individuals have been to the location before. Many of these people have connections with either the location or an individual at the location. (laughs) So they make those plans and preparations before they strike. And when they make those plans and those preparations, when their conduct becomes atypical to them, those are signs that should be called in. Those should be called in every time. Youth may think you're snitching, but let me tell you one important thing. Uh, Maybe two. You don't know what you don't know. You don't know what law enforcement has already collected, what law enforcement's worried about or how many other people called in. And you don't know if this person is on the verge of committing an act. And I'm going to tell you truthfully, last night, last night at midnight to two o'clock in the morning, I was on the phone with an, a college professor, who's a good friend of mine, who had gotten information about an individual who was talking about doing something like this. And he said, I can wait until the morning. And I said, you can't, you have to call right now. And we made the, worked it out to call right now, because it was a threat that we were confident uh, this guy was intending to execute.
0: Yeah. Cause we never know where they are on that path, that journey, that path to violence. It's it's true. You know, I'm I'm thinking back now to a media interview on this topic of the subway shooter, Early on, when, when the shooter was just named a person of interest versus a suspect, a reporter reached out to his sister. I don't know if you saw this reporting. And, and his sister, now whether this is a reflection, as you're saying, of how we just don't want to believe bad things about people we know, um, or whether it's a reflection that this shooter was an incredibly isolated person with no you know very little connections to people. Um, but she says to the reporter, when the reporter says for the first time to this woman, Hey just to let you know your brother's been named a person of interest. And she says that's impossible. That's not that's not who he is. He would never do something like that. So right, there whether you go. whether he's been leaking and she's not seeing it or whether there's a there's a disconnect, you know, in the family. I I don't know, but it is that it's a, it's a it's it's that idea of I can't see this for what it is.
1: I think that, you know, uh, I'll tell you, I I was a prosecutor in Chicago before I joined the FBI, uh, you know, where I was for for 20 years. And the hardest part about the job is you're prosecuting somebody for committing a crime and their family members are in the front row saying he couldn't have done this. This isn't like him. Nobody wants to think your family is going to be like that. Nobody wants to be. You know, there's very can you imagine the angst that went on when the Unabomber's brother called him in and said, hey, we think that I think this guy is my brother. Nobody wants to turn their family and nobody wants to believe that our own kid can do something wrong. But I will tell you that we have saved kids. I mean, high school kids and college kids and people who could have been killed in a mass murder because the parents called and said, I'm afraid that my kid is going to do this. And I can tell you, there have been some situations where the parents haven't called fast enough. And then the guns have been used for murder.
0: Wow. You mentioned some commonalities, uh, job-related, breakup of a relationship. What what are the key commonalities you're seeing across mass shooters as you study them?
1: Definitely interpersonal challenges. People say, oh, that means these guys are uh, loners in their basement. Every bit of those demographics that people think these shooters are, you're looking at the wrong people. So if you think that it's a young white male who lives in his dad's basement and plays video games, then you're completely looking in the wrong direction to look for our shooter. The shooter is more likely that young man's dad upstairs who has an issue with his um, marriage, his family relationships, his finances, and his job. Those are the problems that are the stressors that kick people over the edge. And the average age of, of active shooters, 35. The median age, 32. And it makes sense if you think that half of these shootings occur in businesses. These are people who are stressed over jobs and finances. And it's not just one stress. Right. The FBI study showed three to four stressors in every every single person who was a shooter had three or four stressors they were balancing. And then something tipped them over the edge.
0: You know, when I, in terms of doing something about it and and on a, on a larger scale, ensuring that people can recognize all of these warning signs and indicators, I, I when I left the bureau, I uh, I actually ironically got even deeper into workplace violence because I went into corporate security. Sure. What what, what does your work tell you when you work with corporations and maybe some corporations who go, hey, look, it would never happen here or it's going to get really it's going to get really expensive to do training videos and take people offline so they can sit and listen to you for two hours. What do you tell them about the impact they can have on mass shootings, workplace violence if they if they get it right?
1: Besides the thing that you want to say, which is please do the right thing, which I know isn't always which isn't always the economical thing. These kinds of shootings are incredibly expensive for businesses, and the average uh, uh, settlement in a workplace violence lawsuit, and I say workplace violence, uh, per individual is a half a million dollars. So you might say, workplace violence, what does that have to do with it? But as you know, Frank, under federal law, and here in the United States, you have a general duty. There's a general duty clause under OSHA, general uh, employer has a general duty of obligation, uh, the general duty clause, it requires that if you're injured in, a, in your place of employment and they, it was an anticipate in that, you know, the employer could have done something in anticipation because this was a, an understandable, potentially known threat, which shootings are, then you have a general duty of ob- obligation to protect them. Half a million dollars is the amount just per person. Average workplace uh, workplace violence lawsuits. So so but,
0: so so for companies saying, hey, it's too expensive to take my factory employees offline for an hour to get some training. You say you think that's expensive. Wait until you right? have a mass shooting incident and get sued, right?
1: Right, exactly. And you know, the think about some other things. The cost to um, Virginia Tech when the shooting occurred at Virginia Tech, the cost was forty eight million dollars. It cost the state of Virginia to fix the school back up, not the lawsuits and things like that, right? The cost to MGM, Mandalay Bay, when the shooting occurred out in uh, in, in Vegas, they paid $800 million, $49 million over their insurance limit, $800 million just to settle their part of the lawsuit. Um, in addition to that, from an employer standpoint, I know that some of the estimates that I've read say up to a third of the employees leave a place of employment when a shooting like this occurs. Imagine having to hire and retrain and the cost involved in hiring and retraining. So, you know, what can you do as an employer? Uh, Give them some serious, realistic training. Make sure your HR people know how to handle terminations thoughtfully and with intent and heart. That is such a minor thing that you can do. People, I know, Bean counters, some of my best friends are bean counters and they'll say, I'm not giving some guy two weeks of salary when he did such and such. You know, how much does it cost to the company if you carefully and gently dismiss a person and give them two weeks of extra pay or three weeks of extra pay or four weeks of extra pay to, of a guy who you are maybe not paying a fortune to so that they have some cushion so they can get another job let me tell you one stat about the initial study that I researched for the FBI. When I I wrote the initial research for the Bureau. And when I, one of the most astonishing facts that I found is that in places of employment, where the um, shooting occurs in places like factories and law offices and places that are just, there's not really any pedestrian traffic. It's a shooter who comes back to shoot in their place of business, which we hear about all the time, right? It's one of the most common uh, types of, of shootings like this. In those instances, there were, in the study years that we studied, there were 23 incidents that occurred in places like that, packing houses and post offices and, and uh, hair salons and lawyers' offices. There were 23 shootings that occurred in places of business where the public did not transit. 22 shooters were employed there. Four of them fired that day. Four fired that day. Ah. You were asking for trouble if you don't take the time to pay for proper training for your HR people come up with a good system to kindly take, there's nothing wrong with being kind to people. That person might not work in your employment for whatever reason. It doesn't mean that you have to kick them in the, in the tail on their way out the door right. and embarrass them.
0: Yeah, there should because be, a, they
1: might come back.
0: There should be a risk analysis conducted before every termination um, to understand what, what the threat could be and how this could go South quickly.
1: You don't, but you don't even know if a guy has a, a guy or a gal has a gun in their, uh, underneath the seat in their car or in their glove box and they get fired and they seem like they're fine but your policy is that you hand them a box and they walk out the door and you don't want them in your IT I get all of that you don't want it. you can run your risk mitigation and protect your uh, own IP and your all of that in your own facility without having them destroy you can still get them gently out the door I mean remember the days of the you used to have uh, outsourcing we're going to try to look for a job for you mm-hmm. Well, we certainly don't do that anymore in the in the business world, it seems like. But if you get somebody out the door gently, I mean, Frank, you've arrested a lot of people as an FBI agent. I did, too. How many times did you have some agent, some, some guy you arrested, just shake your hand and say, thank you for treating me so well? Goes a long ways, doesn't it? it yeah. I tell you,
0: it makes it makes a difference. It may, I tell there's a story. There's a story I tell of a of a bank robber uh, when I was in the Atlanta office, and he was so impressed with how the the agents on the bank robbery squad handled him that he he listed one of the agents as a reference on a job application. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: awesome. On. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Oh yeah. Um, That's so awesome. really, but the... I think kindness is there's kindness is not underrated. Yeah, the... kindness, especially when the cost is so expensive. Yeah, you know when the cost is mass shootings, kindness goes a long ways.
0: Hey, let's hit pause so I can share a word from our newest sponsor, Credit Karma. In my personal life, I've always been a stickler for pristine personal finances, avoiding debt, paying down debt, and now here comes credit karma. Paying down debt can be stressful, especially when you need to keep track of multiple monthly payment dates. If you're tired of juggling due dates, consolidating with a personal loan could be your answer. That way, you'll have just one due date a month, and credit karma can help you find the best option for you. Credit karma uses your credit data to find loan offers that are personalized to you, so you can have a better idea of what loan amount you can get approved for. Credit karma will even show you your chances of approval, so you can choose between loan offers that you're more likely to get approved for and apply with more confidence comparing loan offers on credit karma is 100 free won't affect your credit scores and could save you money credit karma apply with more confidence today ready to apply head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers go to credit karma.com loan offers to find the loan for you that's credit karma.com loan offers now back to the podcast Well, and the the workplace environment is um, is where things happen, and even tr- I do I do training in churches, large uh, mega churches mm-hmm. um, you know they've they've got people coming through there every single day and training mm-hmm. the staff, the ushers right you know to know what doesn't look right and what does. It's a sad state of affairs, but this is where we are. and as you just pointed out, it's too expensive you you can't afford not to have. A workplace violence program in place, and when I when I do consulting, I, I often hear security directors at companies say, "Oh, we're very proud of our last uh, work, uh, active shooter drill. We ran out of the building in thirty two seconds." And, and I and I, I say to them, "Well, that's very nice, but understand that when you you're running out of the building, it's too late. <laughs> what are you doing before the gun uh, gets fired?" And I and I kind of right. get a blank stare at that.
1: Right. Yeah. And I do think that I think this is one of the things that I regret. You know, when I was uh, maybe I don't I shouldn't say I regret it. But, you know, when I started in down this uh, adventure after the Sandy Hook shooting, you know, I had been a terrorism supervisor and a terrorism worker and counterintelligence like you before that. That's what I was doing. And then, you know, in the bureau, you get assigned whatever you get assigned. And they said to me, hi, now you're going to create this active shooter world for us. You're going to solve mass shootings. No small task. But when I started down that path, one of the things that we did is I actually the run, hide, fight, you know, the model of run, hide, fight that is all over the United States now is really um, attributable to uh, the city of Houston developed that that run, hide, fight model uh, on a DHS grant uh, just the summer before it was released, the summer before the Sandy Hook shooting, which was in December of 2012. They released a video on it and all this training material that's in like, you know, 15 languages or something. It's fantastic. It's available for free on the city of Houston's uh, website. And the reason that we push that is I thought we needed some single messaging about what we know, which is that at every single shooting scene, people either run or hide or fight. And what we want you to do is any of those, but we don't want you to freeze. So the concept was great, but I think the problem that we have now, and I see this in employers all the time. So it's interesting that you mention that, is that they'll say, We have a great active shooter program because we train once a year.
0: That's right. Yeah. It's not built in. It's not there's no reporting mechanism to quietly be encourage employees to report. They don't know who to report to. They they aren't taught the warning signs and indicators. And yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and run and, and running out of the building once a year, you know, and, and having no one come back by the way. So <laughs> that's another problem.
1: Yeah, right? Yeah. You know, and it's okay, but you know, that's just such a small, that's such, you know, everything in, in, in every instance is, you know, what before, what during and what after. And when I, when I wrote this book, I noticed that when I finished that 10 of the 14 chapters were on prevention, because that's really what we have to do. We have to prevent it. And if we want to prevent it, um, and that's really why I started doing the podcast with Sarah Ferris, because she was, so, she was all like, like I said at the beginning, she was like, why don't you, well, you would have this problem solved in America if you got rid of the guns. And she says to me, I'm kind of your target market for the book. She is. She's a mom. She has kids in school. She's worried about what should she be looking for? What should she be doing? And that's what we talk about every week ourselves, is who are you looking for? What are the signs that they're, that somebody's going on a trajectory towards violence? Who do you report it to you know i'm guessing that you probably don't know the number to report uh an anonymous report over a text message in your community uh frank i can tell you i probably don't know mine i call the fbi tip line that's my methodology which is very efficient not perfect but very efficient but the states have developed tremendous uh, and schools have them tremendous anonymous tip lines Uh, That you can text into. And the largest number of tips come in on those tip lines between 4 p.m. and midnight when people are home from work and kids are home from work, uh, from school. And those tips come in, and the more tips that come in, the more problems are offset. And I'll tell you one other thing about the tips that come in. You know, as you can imagine, a very small number of them have to do with this kind of violent act, but a very large number of them have to do with people under stress, people under strain people being bullied, people have mental health issues, and all of those people get assistance too, right? So calling something in, you may stop somebody from getting get under a very stressful situation that involves suicide or bullying or mental health or financial stress. But if we don't help those people at those levels, we may be dealing with a subway killer who, or a subway shooter who now has been leaking his concerns for years and not being able to get attention So he goes onto a subway, splatters a bunch of rounds all over, clearly was firing maybe not to kill people, because it's hard to believe he couldn't have hit a few people center mass. And as his next way that he's reaching out, trying to get help for himself, and then we can't even any step when he walks away because he doesn't get arrested, then he calls himself into a tip line to say, hey, come and get me. He knows he needs help. He knows he has problems. And the leakage has been there for a long time. Who saw it?
0: Well, he even I mean, if reports are correct, I, I don't know if you've had a chance yet. I have not to review every single one of his social media Mm-mm. postings, but there's one uh, that that made a reference to the city of New York and or the New York mayor and and quote the the mental health program or I am a victim of the mental health program or something. And yeah, I mean, it's we, we have a gun violence crisis, but we also have a mental health crisis in America and with the mm-hmm. with the inability to get access quickly to quality uh, professional mental health care yeah, do you do you have any thoughts on why why the increase why why the I, I know we've all been you know we've experienced covid and a lockdown and and all of that and and job related issues now because of the pandemic but Over the last ten years or so, what's going on? What's happening to us? Why why the increase? Why the increased mental stress?
1: Yeah, I think that you know you certainly hit the nail on the head. There is increased mental stress, and I like that you say mental stress and not somebody who's got a mental health problem. You know, National Council on Behavioral Health is very adamant that look, this aren't people who are getting who have mental health diagnoses. They may be people who could be diagnosed or have been diagnosed with a mental health uh, issue, but. The vast majority of people who are diagnosed with a mental health issue are cared for and don't commit any type of violence, right? So it's not, and and if we think it's somebody who's just, you know, got this mental health problem, then we dismiss that. We take them off. They go, oh, well, that's not me. That's not my son. My son isn't like that. But what we really are dealing with is people who have these additional Mental stressors that have been going on and increasing and increasing, and certainly with COVID, there are people who weren't getting the mental health care that they needed. Um, They maybe didn't want to have that mental health um, service online through a Zoom call or you know a, a WebEx call or whatever. I think that's part of the increase is that we're seeing people who could be getting mental health care and they're not getting it because of the pandemic. We also have people who have lost their jobs, right? So there's a, you go back to the initial, what I I mentioned about what the initial stressors are, relationship problems, job problems, financial problems, mental health problems, those really all tie together. And I think we're kind of in a perfect storm of that right now, even though we're coming out of the pandemic, it's been a few years. And I don't think people are anxious to, I don't think they're confident that we're really out of that. And even if we Get back and everybody's working, then where everybody's still clawing, right? You're clawing, saying, Oh, you know, I've lost all of these wages or I've lost all, I've lost this job opportunity. I've lost these. So everybody feels that they're behind. You hear that with kids. My kids have missed two years of school. You know, they're way behind in school. Well, I think where they are is we have to level set and say, This is where we are right now. And let's just start again. But we need to start taking care of the people around us because everybody's got more stress. Now than they had before. Right. Our, our level of stress is higher, and we have to be kind, and we have to be more tolerant, and more accepting, and more inclusive, and more caretaking of those around us, yeah. uh, not just at home but at work.
0: More stress combined with access to more guns, and states that are re, you know not requiring permits and training and licenses, and have you know open carry, and it, it's um, unlocked
1: and unlocked guns. Unlocked guns. Yeah, unlocked I, guns. I mean, what the heck?
0: Yeah, that, the, as you pointed out at the beginning of our discussion, it's it's the easy access that kids have that everybody can has to a gun. And if we were just to do some simple things, do you think that would help? So, requiring that when you purchase a gun that a lock comes uh, with it, or a trigger guard, or
1: yeah, I mean, different states and different people. I I, I respect that you know, in the gun category of stuff that people uh, discuss, you know, there've been trigger guard. Uh, arguments and laws. Uh, there's there's definitely laws that have to do with. I think there are you know Virginia passed seven laws the year before, um, and so I live here in Virginia up near Washington D.C. and and they passed laws that said things like you can only buy one gun a month, and um, the waiting periods and the and there are I think all the time people say to me you know what what can we do? Why is this happening? What should I do? And the problem with that all those questions is it seems to require a single answer. And um, whether it's guns, politics, mental health stress, uh, kids who are uh, trying to commit suicide, all of the answer, there's multiple answers, right? I think that's why I mentioned before about how the charges in the state of Michigan at the Oxford High School, the prosecutor in Oakland County for uh, for Oxford High School shooter has charged that shooter with terrorism something that we haven't seen before. I think that's successfully going to move through, that's my prediction. Those kinds of situations we're looking for different answers and all of those count. whether it's a local community that requires trigger locks or a community that passes a law that says you can't you know buy as many guns. you know right now when you run a gun background, that gun uh, registration uh, information is not retained in the system. It, it disappears. So a guy who is a felon, buys a gun, then he goes to, he tries to buy a gun. He gets turned down, he goes down to the next store and he tries to buy a gun and he's a felon, but he maybe he can buy the gun because there's no way to track and trace somebody who's been a repeat offender, somebody who wants to be a gun trafficker. So gun, gun issues are complicated in the United States. And, and I guess what I always stress to people is clean up your own house first. Look at what's in your area. Do you have unsecured guns in your house? Do you let your kids go to someplace where they're unsecured guns? Are you not looking at the mental health, mental wellness of the people around you? Are you adding to their stress? Are you ignoring signs that are right in front of you, of your friends and neighbors, friends, neighbors, peers, classmates, the most common people who see these shooters right before they strike over and over again, rising on this trajectory towards violence and they don't turn them in.
0: What what a a powerful discussion. Um, And again, I'll say it again, while the politicians are debating, wrestling and getting nowhere, On the gun issue, there is something we can do, all of us, and we can be more aware of what's going on around us, who's leaking, as Catherine says, who's telling us they're headed to violence. And we we can learn, we can do, we can stop the killing. And the book is Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis by Catherine Schweit. She's been our guest on this episode of The Bureau Kate, um, as is often the case when I have former government and FBI uh, folks on, your service did not stop with your retirement. You are continuing to serve the nation by just making us all aware of how we can all be safer. Thanks for doing that.
1: Thank you, Frank. I think uh, that's a mission a little bit, but I feel like I have to do my part. Indeed. I have to do my part, and I want, I want everybody else to do their yep. part, but I really appreciate you giving me the time.
0: We shall. And um, the podcast is also Stop the Killing, right?
1: It is. It is. It's a good it's a good free listen on any platform. So you can buy a book, but you don't have to. The book's <laughs> available also on audiobook and um, and so you know there's a couple of options to get it. Lots. So however you consume. I,
0: I highly rec- I highly recommend it. It's a quick read. It's a smart read. Check it out. Stop the killing by Catherine Schweit. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks, Frank. Right, take care. Take
0: care. Thanks for joining this discussion with Catherine Schweit. Be sure to pick up a copy of her book, Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis. And be sure to check out her podcast, Stop the Killing. I'll be here next time to take you behind and beyond the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. I hope you'll be here too.
1: The Bureau is written by Frank Fogluzzi, and executive produced by Allison Gill, with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey, with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent, creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.